Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 35,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been living with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh. feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I'm your host. I'm Mary Lou Stevens, former ABC radio presenter and author of the memoir, Sex, Drugs and Meditation, and the novel, The Last of the Apple Blossom. Today, I'm talking with Julie Bennett about her debut novel, The Understudy. The Understudy is a sexy page-turner of a novel full of intrigue, secrets and ambition set during the opening season of the Sydney Opera House in 1973. Hi, Julie, and congratulations. Thanks, Mary Lou, and thank you for having me. Now, first up, I'd like to set the stage for how we actually first met. It was the autumn of 2015. We were sitting next to each other in a meeting room overlooking the Adelaide Botanic Gardens and we were both there to do Fiona McIntosh's five-day fiction masterclass. So, Julie, what brought you to Fiona's masterclass? Well, that's a great question because I had always said to myself that I wanted to write a novel and I had expected to have written one by the time I'd gone to to, um, Fiona's masterclass. But I hadn't. So I thought, you know, the only thing that was happening was I was getting older. So <laughs> I thought, yeah, so I thought maybe it's just time to face facts that unless you get serious about this, it's not going to happen. So I had seen Fiona speak at um, a bookstore about her books and she mentioned that she had a masterclass. And so I went up to her and I just asked her about it. And she said, oh, yes, yes, and here's the details and email me and blah, blah, blah. So when I emailed her, she said, unfortunately, all the um, sessions are uh, are full for the year, but I'll put you down for next year. So I thought, great, the whole year to write a book. Fantastic. (laughs) And uh, then she then an opening came up rather more quickly than I expected. So I was actually at the masterclass just a couple of months, I think, later, and I had to write the first 10 pages. So I went, oh, okay. So I dashed off 10 pages. And interestingly, those 10 pages have hardly changed. So, yeah, so that, I mean, I can't remember how much they've changed, but hardly at all. And um, yeah, that's what took me there. I just thought it's now or never. It's now or never. And how long had you been writing for at that stage? Oh, look, I, st- <laughs> I started writing um, creative fiction from the time I could write, I think. And I remember wow. telling, I remember telling my mum when I was certainly younger than eight that I was going to write my autobiography and she suggested <laughs> that I might like to get some life experience first. And I remember thinking... I mean, oh, my God, now. But I remember thinking, like, I'm nearly 10. I have nearly 10 years life experience. That's true. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But I sort of put it on hold. But I always scribbled, you know, I was always scribbling things. I was always writing short stories and little 
romance novels and stuff like that always it seemed to me my whole life that I'd been scribbling and then I became a, a finance journalist I did that for a little while and then I had my own PR business and of course life can get in the way and, and I let it um, but then as I said you know one day I just said I'm just going to do this for real so I had some practice novels <laughs> as, <laughs> as you call them. but um, this one I was very serious about doing this one yeah. What made you so serious about this book in particular? Well, when I was, um, I have had a few different jobs. So uh, when I was first out of school, I went and worked for a bank. But less than a year later, um, I became, uh, I went and worked in a library. And I, I became a library technician, they called it in those days. And one of the librarians, I think, mentioned to me, you know, obviously I was always scribbling, she knew. And so I think it was one of the librarians who said, you know, your family background, uh, operatic background, and your experience on the stage as a child, that would be a fascinating backdrop for a novel. And <laughs> I hope Dad's not listening, but, you know, in a way I thought my father had been in the opera for, or over, he had a career in the opera company, and um, I thought, yeah, well, would people really inter be interested in my dad's job? You know, like... <laughs> For me, it was kind of just my dad's job. But, of course, yeah. when you think about it, it's quite different from the experience of lots of people. So I had that in the back of my mind all the while, you know, and thinking, well, what, what kind of story could I write and how could it be inspired by that background? And, and that's why I did it, yeah, because I had so that background. Your dad was an opera singer. Yeah, my dad was an opera singer for 30 years. So he's a tenor in the um, Australian, it was called the Australian Opera Company then and then it later became um, Opera Australia. And, yeah, at 30 years he was full-time in the chorus and, um, you know, it was an amazing, when I think back on it, I mean, it was an amazing experience uh, to have someone in the performing arts, to be employed full-time in the performing arts in Australia and at such a time, yeah. Did he sing around the house? Yeah, he sure did. <laughs> But, I mean, um, <laughs> it probably sounds fabulous, but, I mean, a lot of the time it was warm-up exercise, exercises. Yeah. So, you know, before going to a show or a rehearsal, he would have to warm up and he would start the warm-up exercises at home. And then I remember when, um, so my sisters and I were in the, um, we were child extras in the opera sometimes and in the car going into the city with him, you know, it was he was doing his exercises in the car. So, you know. <laughs> kind of rolling our eyes in the back seat. <laughs> Were you ever tempted to become an opera singer yourself? Look, um, I did learn with my dad for a little while and um, I really, you know, he said, look, you, you know, you can become a, an opera singer if you want to, um, but it, it requires so much hard work, Mary Lou. You know, it was, um, it's a very physically demanding um, thing to sing opera and it's also, you know, you need to, really study music and um, singing and and you know it's it's a it's a commitment it's a real commitment it's not like you know it's not a nine-to-five job so mm. um, I I liked singing and you know I learned singing and it was great to share that with dad and I didn't do it for very long but um, in the end I just loved writing a little bit more I think. <laughs> <laughs> You have mentioned you were a child extra, though. So yes. what was it like? I mean, how old were you the first time you stepped onto the stage of the Sydney Opera House? 
So I was 11 and the opera was War and Peace, which is generally accepted as the first opera performance in the Sydney Opera House. And it happened in September 1973. So the very year that the Opera House opened, it was officially opened about a month later by the Queen. So it was September 1973 and I was 11. So you can do the maths about how old I am now. (laughs) um, It was you know, how can I describe it? It was magical. It was magical. It was such a time of excitement, you know, and I remember um, that, so we were in the green room and I remember them bringing in the furniture, you know, for the lounge chairs and the, in the green room and taking the plastic sheets off them. that's That's how new the Sydney Opera House was. It was so exciting. And it was like magic for a kid, you know, and you step out on stage and all your little childhood worries just disappear because you enter another world. And it's just, it was just amazing, amazing. How much of your love of the Sydney Opera House has imbued your book, The Understudy? Oh, I'm totally in love with our Sydney Opera House. I'm totally in love. And I think, I know I'm really biased, but I think it's the most beautiful building in the world. And oh. I've seen a few buildings around the world. Not, I mean, I'm not a huge, I'm not a big globe trotter, but I have seen some. And I think it's the most beautiful building in the world. And and I think we, as a, you know, we should be very proud of it, and we should be very proud of, um, and I think we are of of the, um, you know, what goes on in the Sydney, these shows that go on in the Sydney Opera House and and our arts and our performing arts and our culture. I think it's amazing. So I was deeply in love with the Opera House. <laughs> and for me, it's it's visually spectacular, but it's also, it's the scent of it, you know, and sense is so important to me. The, the smell of the Opera House, it has this distinctive perfume. So whenever you walk through that tunnel, you know, beside the stage door or the entrance to the theatres, you can smell it. And it's, it's, earth and concrete and salt and sea air and it's just to me I close my eyes and smell it I know where I am it's just beautiful to me so yes I'm in love (laughs) (laughs) well the Sydney Opera House is uh, like a major character in the understudy but there are some (laughs) other fabulous characters so Julie can you tell us a bit about the story of the understudy the plot a little elevator pitch if you like yeah, sure. So it's the story um, of Sophie, really. It's it's mainly the story of Sophie, who's the understudy, and Margaret, who is the prima donna. So Sophie has to step up on stage at the first opera performance in the Sydney Opera House when Margaret mysteriously goes missing. So she steps up and she um, has to take Margaret's place for quite a number of performances, and she falls into the arms of the Italian famous Italian tenor who's performing the male lead. And so the story really is about Sophie's um, progress from understudy to star, but also the story of Margaret and where she's gone and what's happened to her. And so there's a little cloud of mystery around that. Well, big cloud, actually. (laughs) You have have the understudy, the famous soprano, the imported Italian tenor, did you base yeah. any of these characters on people you might have met, you know, through being a, a child extra or your dad being in the opera scene? <laughs> yes. um, no, I've been asked that quite a lot and it's been interesting to hear people go, oh, well, this is based on a true story. Well, I hope not <laughs> because <laughs> rather dire things happen. But, um, no, um, it's not inspired by anyone in particular, but I think being in that world you meet 
um, characters who, and, and you know, the characters in operas themselves, they have certain um, qualities, uh, certain characteristics. So it's it informed by that sort of world. You know, nobody in the, in the novel is anyone that I would recognise. But it's a, it's a culmination of experience, I guess, hanging out with theatrical people and just it's the vibe. You know, it's the, the, the way that it feels when you're in the opera. So mm. uh, apart from perhaps Armando, who's the... Um, Italian tenor. I've I've met a few Italian tenors, and they are charming. <laughs> they are charming. So maybe yeah. a little bit. <laughs> has Has your dad read the understudy? Oh yes. So my parent, both my parents have been absolutely fantastic. Mum should have been an English teacher. So thank you for pointing out all the missing apostrophes, Mum. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and they've read I think every single draft. And my parents are in their eighties. And, you know, some of the understudy is quite confronting. Um, and, you know, I did think about whether or not <laughs> to share the whole thing. And then I went, you know, my parents are adults and they're sort of, um, you know, they, they are sophisticated adults. And, and if they don't want to read it, they won't read it or they'll make a remark to me, you know. But they were absolutely fantastic. They read every draft. And um, that's why I've dedicated it to my dad, actually. Yeah. 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 So how much research did you have to do? It is set in 1973. Mm. It is the opening season of the Sydney Opera House. Mm -hmm. And you've really captured that vibe of Sydney and the underbelly and everything that's going on at the time. So I am curious about the research that you did. Sure. Well, um, it was very handy to have been alive at the time. <laughs> So that was very handy. And I'm sure you know as a fellow author that you you um, you start to write. Well, for my process, as I start to write, I, I'm a big pantser, I don't plot. And um, I start to write. And then as you write, you go, well, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. <laughs> I'll uh, do a little bit of research around this and this and this. And so what I did was I allowed myself to write the novel pretty much off the top of my head. However, I certainly, as things came up, researched it, uh, you know, researched certain things. For example, I, I was talking to you earlier about did they have electric kettles in 1953, which is a flashback in the book, and um, things like that. You know, I researched that along the way because I thought those were details that might, I might not remember to, to research, small details. Um, but then after I'd finished, I... Look well. Of course, I had some memorabilia because I'd been in the opera in 1973, and I also had, you know, some of my dad's stuff. And then I went back, and I I had vast amount of, um, you know, newspaper clippings of the day and works written by other people about being in opera. I read people's blogs on being an opera today, an opera performer today. Um, I read lots and lots and lots of works and I preferred works that had actually been written in the 70s rather than mm -hmm. people sort of talking about the past because I, I feel like there was an immediacy about that but I have a, um, a trunk that used to belong to my mother-in-law that's full of <laughs> full of all the research you know you think to yourself oh yes well most of my research was online then I go to the trunk it's full of all this stuff you know and I also mm -hmm. like to have the, the actual stuff you know so I talk about as I said, scent was really important to me, but then I read about, you know, well, what perfume did the Queen wear so that I could sort of talk about that in the book when she opens the opera house? And then I had to have the what is rumoured to be the Queen's perfumes. You know, I just, 
I just yeah. have to have them because you, the smell of them, talking about them and hearing about them is one thing, but when you smell it and you experience it yourself, I think you're better equipped to write about it. So mm-hmm. a lot, you know, in the, in the beginning you write the story, or in my case I write the story and then, you know, I need to know everything quite intimately. I was quite obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> embarrassingly obsessive about the research yes now you've mentioned that the uh first opera performed at the sydney opera house was not the opera that you have chosen to depict in the understudies so why did you make that change um for a start um i didn't want to there to be any correlation between the people who might have been in the opera at that time because you know that's their lives and their experience I didn't want to sort of appropriate that so I wanted to be completely fiction and then the other thing was I wanted to um an opera that I thought an understudy could perform brilliantly and I thought Butterfly was a good um a good choice for that and you know and I absolutely love Puccini you know (laughs) the music is just gorgeous and you know I liked Madame Butterfly before I wrote this book but oh my god when I listened to the music again and again and again and again which I did you know you just fall in love all over again it's the most beautiful Puccini's a genius of course they all are but um yeah those are the reasons really yeah you mentioned there's a flashback to uh, the 1950s mm-hmm. and you've also written this book from two different protagonists' point of view, mm-hmm. but they're both first-person crescent tense. So it's yes. an interesting structure with that mm-hmm. and the flashbacks as well. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that you're a pantser. So this is just the way the, the form of the book flowed yes. off your pen? Yes, it is the way. And um, so I know Sophie very well. and. Uh, you know, understanding Sophie and her motivations was not difficult for me. And Sophie, the only thing that occurred to me about Sophie, I I wrote her slightly differently in the early drafts. But what occurred to me as time went by was this is a strong woman. She's young, right? (laughs) She knows what she wants and she's going to get it. So, uh, you know, when I went back and, and sort of edited the book, I wanted those characteristics to be more obvious. You know, she's, she's serious, you know, and I talked earlier about how I, I don't think I had, you know, when I was singing and learning to sing with my father, I didn't have that drive to become an opera singer, whereas Sophie does. She really, really does. It's the only thing she wants. It's the only thing she's ever wanted. So she's a very strong person. And, um, but Margaret, so Margaret's also a strong person, but some bad things happen to Margaret. And, and the thing about Margaret is that she talked to me in my head so loudly. She was the loudest voice in my head. I had to keep toning her down. I was Margaret, can you settle down? I'll get to that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like she's sort of saying to me, and tell them this and show them this and explain <laughs> that and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know where she came from, but she was very wow. noisy in my head, very mm-hmm. noisy. I'm not crazy, everyone, but it would help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's how it happened. It just sort of happened that way. It's, yeah, they, my characters mm. talked to me. Yeah. Mm. I am talking to 
Julie Bennett on the Words and Nerds podcast about her debut novel, The Understudy. It's a really great read. I just absolutely loved it, romped through it. And um, I want to talk about your path to publication. But first up, Julie, we talked <laughs> up the top about us sitting next to each other at Fiona McIntosh's Masterclass. Do you remember our bet? Yes, I do remember our bet. <laughs> So Mary Lou and I had a bet about who would be published first. And you want to take the, the take it from there, Mary Lou? <laughs> well, I think we both won. <laughs> <laughs> She's been very generous and kind. <laughs> well, so are you, because um, Julie actually got signed first, but my book got published first. Yes. yes. So, yes. And, and I actually, um, when you got signed and the news came out, <gasps> I actually messaged you and, and said, I've got to be totally honest with you, Julie, but I was really, really angry that <laughs> you I know it's supposed to be generous and, you know, happy for you and all that kind of stuff, but I lost the bet and I was <laughs> No, you so, didn't really because you were published first. Yeah, I think Providence was very kind to both of us, wasn't it? You know, yeah, I might have been yeah. supposed to publish it. We both won. <laughs> But, you know, I remember getting that message and how grateful I was that someone was really honest with me about their feelings because, you know, in this game it's so difficult. As you and I both know, it's really, really hard um, writing a novel and then trying to get it published and lots of really talented people don't get where we got to and that's a real shame. But, you know, I was so pleased you were honest instead of just going, done I'm so thrilled <laughs> I really respected that I really did and I'm so pleased and and maybe that's the basis of firm friendships where you can be honest about feeling those feelings you know? it's well, it was great I had to I had to wait a few days before I messaged you <laughs> so that I could get over myself <laughs> that's hilarious oh it's hilarious and the other thing I remember about meeting you Marilee was how serious you were about it all you know and it was like as I said I'd had to dash these 10 pages off really quickly and I didn't have a clue what I was doing and and you know, there's Mary Anson next to Mary Lou, sorry, sitting next to me going, very, very serious, very serious. And I'm doing this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going like, okay. Yeah. A bit of a Sophie, perhaps. <laughs> yes, um, very driven. Sorry. Well, I got my- I got I gotta say the book that I was writing at, at Masterclass will never get published. And the one I wrote after that never got published. But oh, this one, yes. the last of the yeah. other blossoms did. So happy days. So let's talk about your path to publication. Yes. So after the masterclass, your glorious 10 pages still in the book. Yes. Um, What happened after that? Um, So um, I, as you know, uh, there was a publisher at masterclass that happened to be Simon & Schuster. Um, So I went away and wrote the book, but it took me a really long time because I still allowed life to get in the way, no matter my promises to myself. And I was, I wrote 30,000 words very quickly. And um, my girlfriend was living in Scotland at the time. And she said, oh, you know, how are you going with your book? I went to visit her. She, I said, oh, I'm really happy with myself. I've done 30,000 words. I'm, I'm on my way, blah, blah, blah. She said, oh, that's fantastic. She came back to live in Australia three years later. And she said, so how's your book going? I went, oh, I'm really happy. I've got 30,000 words. <laughs> 
She said you had 30,000 words three years ago. A page a day. A page a day, no excuses. And that's how I finished the book. I oh, sent her on her. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm not sure if she read every page, but the, that's not the point. You know, it's the, and it's that, it's almost like a, you know, it's a commitment. It's like a deadline. It's a promise. You make your friend, you, you make your best friend a promise. You have to keep it. So mm. that's how it got written. And then it was 140,000 words, Mary Lou. Oh, yeah. <laughs> know that feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so then around that time, um, Fiona had a, um, masterclass conference and there was going to be five publishers there and I thought well I finished the book it seems like a great opportunity to go and meet some publishers so I went and um, you know <laughs> you know what it's like pitching at the at the masterclass it's you get five minutes and that's it and and there's a timer on you and if you don't meet the five minutes well bad luck mm. girlfriend you're out next and so everyone around me <laughs> hope this is okay to say too. Everyone around me is very, very earnest about putting their pitch together and tying themselves and blah, blah, blah. And I went, I'm just not doing that. I'm, I'm just not putting myself under the stress of being pitch perfect. I know my book. I'm just going to have a conversation. Well, <laughs> great, great theory. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I think I did okay in those pitch sessions, but um after, you know, everybody, all the publishers were happy to share their business cards. And so I pitched afterwards to them. And, you know, there was interest from a couple, but it was Simon and Schuster when um, the new publisher came on board, she just fell in love with it. Yay. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's what we love. That's yeah. what we love. Yeah. And that's where it went. Yeah. So uh, we've talked a bit about, you know, determination and drive. What would be your main tip for aspiring writers who would really love to be a debut author like you? So I've honed it down to three things. And so I hope I can say three things. Um, The first one is you have to be able to write. And I don't mean to sound horrible when I say that, but you have, you know, you're up against so many other really talented writers that if you're just sort of starting out with your creative fiction, wait until you've honed your skills a little bit more. So I was really, I thought I could write before I became a journalist and I think I could, right? But, you know, becoming a journalist gave me that discipline and structure to be able to write well, I think. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying make sure you can write because the competition's fierce. And then the next bit is, um, you know, you have to really want this. You really have to want it because even after I was accepted, there were moments where I went, this is so hard. Mm. You know, you're writing, you're rewriting, you've got deadlines, you've got, you're going, and you start when you're getting down to the final stages, you go things like, so were there kettles in 1953? (laughs) Did I take that? You know, it's like you start to get sort of a little bit paranoid about stuff. And so you have to be able to do it. You have to have a tenacity that refuses to let you quit. So if you're going to be that tenacious, you really, really, really have to want it. And so I'd made a promise to myself that I would do this no matter what. You know, like I would fulfil my obligations because it's what I really, really wanted. So make sure you really, really want it. And then, you know, the third thing is um, just... Go, you know, this is interesting too, but, you know, go on the journey of discovering how 
people get published. You know, we talked about Fiona's masterclass and the fact that there were publishers there. So mm. being able to pitch to a publisher, even if you're not successful, means you start to understand what they want, what they're looking for, what kinds of stories grab them, what's the market's doing. So, you know, I'm not saying everyone has to do what I did, but another really great thing I did was join, you know, the um, authors, the Australian Society of Authors, because they have, they're very supportive, they have events, they have, you know, um, they think they call it literary speed dating, where you can pitch, Mm. pitching to actual real live publishers looking for books. So put yourself in the way of people who can help you get to publication. Sorry yeah. if that's a long-winded tip. <laughs> no, 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 that's absolutely perfect. And I totally agree. And when you were talking, your first tip is, you know, make sure you can write. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike yourself, I never wanted to be a novelist. I was a singer-songwriter for years and I thought I'd be famous doing that. Ha-ha. Um, <laughs> but it was suggested to me that I might um, write a column for the local newspaper. Yeah. So I got a few... Um, I think three kind of sample columns together and sent them through to the editor. And he's, he said, um, he said, don't be surprised if I get back to you and tell you, you can't write because most people can't. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the kind of, you know, the brutal thing that you come up against. It's feedback that you need though, right? It's the feedback that you need. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up writing a column. Um, He got back within half an hour and said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You can actually write. You can write. (laughs) And, you know, I wrote, I was a finance journalist, so it's not the same thing, right? But it does teach you that discipline, absolutely. Mm, Yeah. 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 And having said that, the first novel I ever wrote, I I got a match and I thought it was going to be a bestseller and all my friends (laughs) loved it and da-da-da-da-da, and I had a manuscript assessment done. And it was like, oh, when I got the 12 pages of notes and all the, you know, the sticky notes and all that kind of stuff, I went, I, I cannot write. I have no idea how to write. I learned so much from yes. that manuscript assessment and then doing a, manu- a, a mentorship with a person who yes. um, did Yes, excellent that. advice, Marilyn. Excellent yeah. advice. Yeah, yeah. But it's been a long journey. It really has. It has. It has. I, yeah. But, and those... The words from the editor of the newspaper came to me and I, when I got my manuscript assessment that going, <laughs> you're surprised to find out if you can't write because most people can't. Mm-hmm. All right. What is the best thing about being a writer, Julie? Someone asked me this yesterday and it's really hard to, um, to, to decide on the best bit. So for me, I, even, though, even though I didn't write my novel until I was, you know, <clears throat> 50, 10, um, <laughs> 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 so are you a debut no- are you a debut novelist at 60 yeah snap me Ta-da! too <laughs> I know. it's never um, too late I love telling people it's never, never too late no and I, never, I never really worry about how old I am you know in that respect mm-hmm. I just think you know we live a lot longer these days now thank heavens so <laughs> so you know um, I've got some many years of writing ahead I think but even though I haven't written a novel before that was published as I said I had some practice novels and even though I haven't really written anything of note I always felt like I was a writer I always believed that's who I am not not what I do in my heart of hearts I always thought that's who I am and mm. so that being having that you know self-belief recognized as being true is probably the best thing you know you think to yourself because at one stage I'm sure you felt the same way when you're writing this stuff and, and it's a lot of work many hours of work 
and you submit it somewhere and it gets rejected or it's yes, but, or whatever it is, there came a point where I went, maybe I'm not who I think I am. Oh. And I, and I wasn't actually sad. I just right. thought maybe I'm not who I think I am. So that's okay. Mm. That's okay. I'm just discovering who I am now at 60. That's fine. Slow down. <laughs> <up, anyway. laughs> no, maybe, maybe I'm not. And then I got a yes. So yes. Yeah. the best part, I think, was realising I am who I am. <laughs> Which How is wonderful. And yeah. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you this from from my own experiences because um, after the loss of the apple blossom, that was a one book deal. I was offered a, a two book deal, mm. and people said to me, "Oh, you must be so excited!" And I said, "You know <laughs> what? I actually feel really grounded. I feel yeah. as though I'm in the center of my own life. This is where I've been heading towards for mm. so long, mm. and now I'm here. I'm in the center of my own life." Exactly. It sounds to me, yeah, it's a bit similar exactly. for you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. This yeah. is who we are, yeah. Mm. Well, I'm so glad you persevered. The Thank Understudy you. is such a great book. It's a ripping read and you've done Thank such you. a great job of, of evoking that time and the Sydney Opera House and the, and the glamour and the glitz and the, the reality as well and, the, and that seamy underbelly that we talked about. It's yeah. all there. I was just so thrilled to read it. It's such Thank a great page, so Turner. And oh, I wish you, you all the best for it. Thank you so much, Mary Lou. <laughs> it's been so <laughs> wonderful to talk to you and to see you again in the in sort of in person. <laughs> it is the understudy, Julie Bennett. I've been talking to the author, Julie Bennett, and I do thoroughly recommend it. The Words and Nerds Universe content is created by many talented people. We have the usual episodes and live streams hosted by me, Danny B. There are three regular spin-offs, the popular Burgers, Beers and Books hosted by Ben Hobson, the regular Takeover hosted by Nathan J. Phillips, and a different page hosted by Josie Layton. Check the Words and Nerds website for more details. We also have Takeover episodes where an author interviews another author and they take the conversation wherever they like. Throughout the year, we also have short spin-offs like the Summer Series Takeover, the NaNoWriMo series and the Publishing Insider series. You can find all of these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, Danny B Books, Words and Nerds Podcast. Stay safe and read more books.